Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, here with Elias Randall, and we're going to talk about a very simple financial planning idea today, and that's all the financial advice you will ever need fit into one index card. What do you think about that, Elias? Uh, this guy, actually, so I probably learned of him two or three years ago, and he's one of my he's one of my financial heroes. I think it's kind of like... Uh, it almost reminds because in our business and financial services, it's like it can get so complicated and you can watch CNBC and you can really get into the weeds of the financial markets and everything can become very complicated. So it's almost like this guy, he simplified our business down to an index card. And it's like, it, you know how Babe Ruth did it on hot dogs and beer? It's like this guy just simplified it, and he's doing it on an index card, and it works. So let's reveal who this is. It's Harold Pollock. And so I went and researched him. I, truth be told, had never heard about this until you and Molly brought it up to my attention. Never seen this, so I clearly went out and did some research. But this guy's smart. Um, he's a scientist for the University of, University of Chicago. He studies, like, social... Um, social problems that people have. And what he did is he came up with the index card idea. And today we're going to talk about it because some of these are really good ideas. Some maybe I don't agree with, but for the most part, he did try to bring balance to the financial services industry. Um, and I, I actually watched a YouTube clip of a an interview he was doing on PBS where they went to his house and they interviewed him about how he came up with this idea. And one thing struck me as they went through the interview, they went to his garage and the interviewer started walking around his car and Harold Pollock goes, Hey, you know, there's a little bit of rust under here. You can feel the bubbles. And he's got this white car <laughs> and it's just filled with rust. And the guy goes, but you could have a nice car. And he said, I could have a nice car, but my car's not important to me. And I want, I've decided in my life that I should spend the money on things that are important. What's important to me is my family going on vacation. My car's not important, so I don't spend any money except the bare minimum on it. And we've talked about this with people before, and this is really the lifestyle design idea versus just this strict budget. You know, when people think of a budget, they think of, well, I allocate 30% to my house and 20% to this and 18% to this. He, 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 he subscribes to what we've talked about. S say first, spend the money on what's highly important to you and not what society thinks is important. Um, what was the analogy you made in my office this morning? And it related to cars. I forget what you, you told me, but you told me some analogy last night. You were going to ref a football game or something and you had a good analogy for me. Yeah, well, two things. I'm glad you don't listen to me when I'm telling you a story. I lightly listen. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but so the the neighborhood I was driving through, modest homes, pretty small. Um, and not that small means it's a bad house, but they just they're it's an older neighborhood in town that we live in. And as I'm driving through, I'm noticing the houses are older but all of the vehicles were basically brand new and just kind of knowing the price of new vehicles and the price of homes. So there's, there's absolutely people paying in that neighborhood. They're paying just as much or more on a monthly basis for the vehicle they're driving as the, as the home they live in. And that's not necessarily an issue and I'm not bashing on that situation, 
those are probably people that have decided that having a nice vehicle fits their lifestyle more than having a bigger house, which is why they're living in that neighborhood. And then I did mention how I just, I mentioned you, I just think it's odd that they're spending the same on their cars as they are in their house. And you, and you said, which was insightful. I remember this. Yeah. And you said, well, that's not the problem. The problem is that it, they're actually totally fine doing that. But the only problem would be is if they're not saving. And that goes to this lifestyle design idea where the problem with people and their money isn't necessarily spending money on the lifestyle you want to have. It's it's just never getting started. It's never making a systematic savings plan. And if you're doing it, you know, and I get a lot of people, they might, well, I get a 3%. To, if I put in 3% at work, my company will give me 3%. And that's a good starting point, but that might not be the savings rate that's always going to maintain your lifestyle for your whole life. So what's more important is, knowing what the contribution rate should be for your long-term savings goal. And then outside of that, you're saving those dollars and just have the life you want. Yeah. And what I like about this index card method is it really hits in all the things that'll help make you successful. It doesn't have hard rules that said you shouldn't buy a car. You shouldn't buy a new car. You have to do a 30 year mortgage or a 15 year mortgage. These are really, really simple rules that for the most part, if you follow these, you'd be pretty successful. So let me kick it off with rule number one. He states you should be saving 10 to 20% of your money. And we've said this from day one. You got to start saving 10% of your income right away. First thing you do when you set out your budget, you should be line item number one, not line item 42 on the budget. You're 10%. And when I was researching this system, because like I said, I hadn't heard of this. He was doing an interview with a gal. And she said, well, you know, it's easy to say you could save 10% of your income, but if you're only making $20,000, how could you save 10% of your income? And I thought about that and I, that's actually fair, right? I mean, that would be pretty difficult. If you're making 20,000, how would you save 10%? So it got me thinking, okay, well, what's the next best thing if I can't save 10%? And it goes okay. to the next index card. He says, max out your 401k or equivalent employee contributions, which if you can't save 10 or 12%, you're not going to max it out. But I believe that at least getting the employer match, regardless of how much money you make, is important. Okay. Mm -hmm. That said, if you're in a lower pay scale, the whole idea here is not to scare people off of savings, but most people, you know, how much is it to save 10% of 20,000? It's like $150 a month. It's a little more than $150 a month. I don't really care who you are. Most people waste $150 a month. Yeah. And if it, right. And I do agree. It's, you know, on certain incomes, it's harder to save. But at the end of the day, if you make it a priority and you do it, I mean, we all know, like every time you get a raise in your career, you always seem to figure out how to make it work, right? So if that 10% savings is just part of it, you're going to figure out how to make the rest of your life work around that. I think back to when I was in college, I worked basically the entire time I was in college. I worked 25 to 40 hours a week all through college. I easily could have saved 10% of my paycheck because I was spending more than that on a weekly basis. At the bar? 
tailgating. Some of those things. Yeah. Maybe video games. I mean, it all adds up. Yeah. We had some people in the other day and sat down with us and trying to figure out their budget. They're spending a little more than they wanted. And, you know, the spouse is like, well, the car payment's the problem. I'm like, the car payment's not the problem. It's part of the problem, but it's not the problem. The problem is you're running a $4,000 a month deficit and the car payment's $653. Where's the rest of the money going? And it's really not having a handle on somebody's money. So when somebody uses the excuse that, well, I don't make enough to save, it's just an excuse. We've run the charts. If someone just starts saving $50 or $100, where that takes them if they start at a young age. Most people that make the excuse that they can't afford to save are young people. Well, just got out of college. I can't afford to save. Yeah. If you start day one, you can afford and you get to take advantage of all the compound growth and compound interest that's out there. Uh, The next rule he has in the index card is buy inexpensive, well-diversified mutual funds such as, I'm not going to use the name of the company, but we can all probably figure out who it is. And for the most part, this is probably good advice for the person who does not have a tailored financial plan. And let's talk about why. 90% of actively managed mutual fund managers don't outperform the index. And most people who are going to go pick a mutual fund who are not professionals don't have the time, the desire, or the knowledge to go research what are the companies and what are the managers who've outperformed or had the propensity to outperform over a very long period of time. And for most people, If you're doing this yourself, that makes sense. Costs matter, but we've talked about this before. What really matters is net return. If if I show two people, Elias, two investments, and one has a net return of 7% and one has a net return of 12. So after fees and expenses, which one are you going to pick? Assuming the risk is the same. Assuming they both have the same risk. Yeah, assuming you want to be in the investment that returned 12%. Right. Well, let's flip it around. One investment costs 4% a year to own and one is free. Which one would you like? If that's all the information I have, I'm going to take the free one. That's right. And what I'm getting at is a lot of these people who are non-professionals or they're financial gurus who don't really understand the investing world that well. And that's true for most people that are giving you know, advice on how to get out of debt and a lot of different things. They don't really fully understand this. They don't do it every day. They have a good knowledge, but if they were, they'd be talking about net return and not cost because if cost is the only factor, that doesn't mean it's going to lead you to the best investment. No, it doesn't. And one thing I want to add, I don't know if you've seen this internet meme, but for some reason it's been coming up on uh, some of my social media feeds. And I think it's kind of idea with younger people where the meme says something like rich people invest in hedge funds and then tell me to buy the index. And then there's like all these comments about how, well, you don't have to listen. And, and, um, I kind of get the sentiment of where you're coming from, but just under, understand there's a lot of really wealthy people investing in hedge funds and a lot of hedge fund managers, net of the fees they charge don't beat the index. So arguably, they'd be better off just buying the S&P 500. Um, So it's not a bad, don't don't think that just automatically buying the index or buying a target date fund is bad. It's 
it might be passively managed, it's not actively managed, but that doesn't mean it's bad. And it can get you to your goals if that's what 90% you want to do. percent of the time it's better than an active manager. Yeah, I don't know. I but mean, I know of a few funds that have long track histories, but there's not a lot out there that do of beating the index. Here's what I want to tell somebody. Here's the word hedge fund. People aren't buying hedge funds to do better than the market. They're buying hedge funds to manage risk. That's really what a hedge fund is designed to do is manage risk. Would it be great if it beats the market? Yeah, but inherently the word hedge means manage risk. Yeah. And that's it, why it's out there. That's why rich people buy it. It's they're complicated. Do some outperform the market? Absolutely. But they're inherently created to manage risk. Yeah. And so kind of you're almost comparing apples and oranges, right? Because people using hedge funds, they've already become rich. And we've talked about you only have to get rich once. So now they're looking at how do I stay here? Young people accumulating, it's a totally different ballgame. Just keep buying shares every month, every two weeks, however it is, every week, just keep buying shares of good investments and eventually you'll be rich too. And for most people, I would agree with this card by inexpensive well diversified mutual funds, especially if you're doing it yourself. There's no reason to go complicate it unless you have the time, the desire, knowledge to research it. Yeah, if you're doing it by yourself, you should absolutely be doing something that's inexpensive and is good. The next one, never buy or sell in the individual security. The person on the other side of the table more, knows more than you do about this stuff. We literally talk about this with clients when they ask if we're going to buy individual stocks and bonds. If And I want everybody listening to really think about this. If 90% of the actively managed mutual funds, which why don't we post on the website a, a hierarchy of how a mutual fund works and all the layers of management, but let's just think of you have a mutual fund manager that's making the investment selection. And below him, he has, let's say, 50 research analysts researching the individual companies that should potentially be bought or sold. Why in the world would any individual out there, meaning you work at the local wherever, it doesn't matter, just a non-financial job. Why in the world would you think you could do it better than the people that can't beat the index 90% of the time? You can't. So and, and if an investment professional, if you have a stockbroker that says they're going to do better, no, they're not. They're not going to do better. In fact, they fact-checked even someone like Jim Cramer. He's super popular. I don't think he's beating the index. So what's the point? Because we get to talk about the one stock we bought, we hit a home run on. But, oh, let's not mention the other 25 we bought that didn't do well. There's no reason for individuals to be buying individual stocks other than the rule that I subscribe to. The only individual stocks I buy are ones that I personally use so I can feel good about those products and services when I buy them or utilize them. Did I buy them as a major part of my portfolio? No. They're just there because I like to own them. Do I plan on retiring from these? No. They're there because I like to own them. Yeah, and that's, you know, just like you said, to me, that's that's why sometimes people think that they can do it better. And it's such because they buy one or two stocks and like they hit a home run on those, but it's still not relevant to your long-term 
investing plan and getting lucky a couple times. Now all of a sudden you're better than the professional money managers that manage mutual funds. That's just, that that's foolish. That, that'd be like, that's honestly, it's just, that'd be the same as drafting your own will and then saying, I'm better than all the attorneys in town at drafting wills. It's the same analogy. It, so when the guy citing your house gives you a hot stock tip, don't take it. <laughs> so, I mean, or, seriously, like or, they have no, no, no knowledge of this. Um, next payer credit card balances in full every month. And this is, should go without saying, if you're utilizing a credit card, you should pay your balance. Unfortunately, we had this discussion just the other day with somebody. And let's talk about why people actually don't pay their credit card balance. The real world of what happens. And this is for people who decide they're going to use their credit card for purchases, right? There's a certain number of people out there that just say, well, I'm going to buy everything with a credit card and then pay it off. So let's think about why credit card balances get racked up and they never get paid off. You go out, you use your credit card because there's an $800 purchase. And you're like, oh, it feels a little bit better to put it on the credit card than actually spend my cash. And oh, by the way, I think I have like a wedding or a vacation coming up that I might need some money for. So you put it on the credit card with all intention of paying the bill at the end of the month. And then the bill comes and you owe $800 plus whatever interest you're paying. Well, I still have that vacation coming up. So I'll just pay $150 this month, you know, because yeah. I want to save this cash for the vacation. Kick the can down the road a Kick little it. bit. Next month. Well, man, we need a new washing machine. Well, I still have that wedding coming up or that vacation. We better put it on that 0% interest card that Best Buy gave me. <laughs> yeah, so I'm. So we put it on the card. And the next thing we know, we went from owing zero to now we're at $1,700. And we're not going to pay that bill for 18 months because they said, you know, only have to pay a minimum payment for 18 months. And you just get in this cycle. And then pretty soon you have $5,000 in credit card bills and you can't pay them. So what do you do? Now you start spending more cash to pay it down. And then now our dryer went out because we only replaced the washing machine. So now we charge it back again. And you're literally just stuck in this yeah. vicious cycle that you created and never had to be created. And most of it's created because of two things. One, the feeling that we have to have something right away, which we all have. We're all humans. We all feel like, man, I have to have that today. Most things we could do without for a really long time. And number two, thinking that it's not our money. People, credit card money. Yeah. You don't feel like it's your money. And I have a story about this. My great aunt died. This is 12 years ago. She actually didn't really understand how credit cards worked. She thought you just charge everything and then you just make the minimum payments. So she had no and She thought interest free or no, she just thought you didn't have to pay. You just pay the minimum payments. That's it. I'm not, I'm not joking. You can do that. Yeah. She was a teacher, had paid for a house, paid for a car, but when she died, she had like $40,000 in credit card bills. Mm. And it's because she just thought you charge it and just make a payment. She never, she never had the intention of paying it off. She just wasn't good with money. But she had a paid off house. She had a paid off house, paid off car. But the credit and card, the she never grasped the idea that, oh, if I put it on here and I spend 800, I actually have to pay off 800. I just have to pay $35. So for her, it was never paying it off. It was just, 
what's the minimum amount I have to have? Mm-hmm. And when she passed away, my dad just couldn't believe it. And my grandpa shared with her, hey, you know, this is what she thought. And you just can't change that thinking with people. Some people just don't get it. So this is actually a great one. We should be paying off our credit cards every month. And honestly, don't even use the credit card. So for most people, just don't even use a credit card. There's not really a reason to use it unless it's an absolute emergency or if you are booking a trip. But if you book a trip, you know, you don't have to wait till the bill comes. This is how I do it at my house. When we book the trip, shows up the next day on the credit card, you go right to the bank, you pay the credit card off. It's really simple, but most people won't do it. Yeah. And I'm not, I almost feel like credit cards, it's like there's one of two paths. It's either... Because either use them and pay them off, which I use credit cards, especially when we travel. We don't like we like to use a credit card because it offers some protection and stuff if something happens. But it's almost like there's two paths with people. You either are you use it and you pay it off or you just need to cut it up. There's like there's not there's really not like many people who like you're kind of in the middle where they're good with it sometimes and bad with it sometimes. Like it's either you do it and you do it in a way that it doesn't harm you or you need to take a pair of scissors to your credit cards and just never open another one. And that's so like if the people that get in that vicious cycle that you were describing, that's probably the solution. You just do not use them. You shouldn't. They shouldn't use it. Here's why. There was a survey. This is by CNBC. 54% of adults carry credit card balances from month to month. 50% of those people have had the balance for longer than a year. Hold it. 50% of the fit of the 54% yep. that carry balances. Yep. So basically there 25% you go. 25% of half the people a, never pay people, it off. Yeah. Half of people that use credit cards don't pay them off. Yeah. And the average rate, this is September 27, 2021. The average credit card percentage rate is 16%. And you can't keep up with that. It's not over the long term. It's not possible. If you make the minimum payment, I don't know. Now on the credit cards, they list how long it takes to pay these things off based on how much you pay. It's 16%. If you just make the minimum payment for all intents and purposes, you're never paying it off. And you're, you're, your savings not going to keep up with that debt. So that TV you bought that was a thousand bucks takes you five years to pay off. You really paid like sixteen or seventeen hundred bucks for it. Yeah. And this is the vicious cycle people get in. Couple reasons they don't save money. They think they have to have it today. Um, they're all just vicious. But for most people, the best advice is just don't even use a credit card. Instead of worrying about paying a balance in full, which in full, which we know half the time you won't, just don't even use it. Um, next is maximize tax advantage saving vehicles like Roth, SEP, and 529 accounts. And I don't know what year he created this. I think it was around 2011 or 2014, somewhere in there. Okay. I think in the video, I maybe heard 2014. Um, maybe we can get that and put it out there, but I would say this is becoming even more important today in the environment that we're in, that people start to utilize tax-free accounts and the legislation is trying to close the loopholes for wealthy Americans on using tax-free accounts. They want to limit what type of investments you can have in those accounts. They've actually talked about limiting the amount of money you can have in those accounts. Yes. And those are all, those are all reasons. And then also in the long term, I 
I believe taxes will go up eventually. I mean, it's scheduled to go up, we know, but, um, and this kind of ties in with an earlier point about maxing out a 401k. So if you're listening, if you have access to a Roth 401k at your employer, I would absolutely take advantage of that. And then, but if you don't have access to that, kind of a good, a good strategy that I like is start with whatever the minimum you need to get the maximum match from the company. Also open a Roth IRA. If you can, some, some people make too much money to do a Roth IRA. So get the maximum match at work, max out your Roth. And then if you can still save more money, then I would go back to the 401k. I think people, especially younger people, our age, the more money you have in those Roth accounts when you're 60 and 70 years old, you're going to be very thankful that you have that there. The next one on the list, pay attention to fees, avoid actively managed funds. We've already talked about this. Um, fees are potentially relevant. What's more important is the net return for the associated risk you're taking with an investment. Um, if you don't know, you can def default to some type of an index fund. So I'm not going to talk about this one more. Number eight, though, uh, make financial advisors commit to the fiduciary standard. And most people don't really understand what fiduciary means. They feel like it, it's a good word. In its clearest form, it means the advisor has an obligation to do what's in your best interest. And in 2014, the Obama administration passed um, a law called the fiduciary rule, and it was going to require all investment professionals, insurance people to be held to a fiduciary standard on any qualified or retirement type of money. That actually didn't end up becoming law, but what did was something called regulation best interest, which requires investment professionals, insurance agents, all the, all the above to act in the best interest of their client. And here's what I'll tell you is in my belief, and I know a lot of financial advisors, I know insurance people, but most financial advisors that I know act in their client's best interest, regardless if it's the fiduciary standard or not. It does not mean there's not bad apples. It goes back to this. Understand what you're buying as a product. Understand what you're getting in return. Understand the fee structure, the expenses. If you can't explain it, don't buy it. And if you're worried about having a fiduciary, that means you're paying a level or set fee for service, whether it's based on the assets that they manage, an hourly rate, or an annual retainer. The fiduciary standard means there's no commissions involved for the most part. And that's the easy way to discern who you are working with. But most people are working in your best interest. There are bad apples out there. It's just hard to tell who they are. Yeah, I, and, and I agree with that. I think the advisors that I know personally that we know are good advisors. Um, so I, I think this is this is good advice. I, I agree with you, though. I think what's more important is how you're compensating your advisor should be disclosed and they should be able to explain it and you should be able to understand it. That's what's important. But I, in general, the people in our business, they're doing what's in their client's best interest. It's actually really to not would be very counterproductive to the goals of our industry anyway. When you hire an advisor that works in a fiduciary standard, what it really means is that your goals are aligned and you're both sitting on the same side of the table together. And what I mean by that is when the client does better, the advisor does better financially. When the client does worse, the advisor does worse. So you're on the same side of the table and 
all of your, everything's aligned. And this goes back to probably two of his previous comments and it's pay attention to fees. Well, that's what you hire a fiduciary advisor to do is make sure that you're getting the right return for the fee that you're paying in that fund. That's part of being a fiduciary is, well, why would the fiduciary have you have a mutual fund with a 3% fee if it's underperforming, they won't. That's why you're hiring them to do that work for you. And most times you're hiring a financial advisor. It's to delegate your time, desire, and knowledge. And the last the last one on his index card is promote social insurance programs to help prom- help people when things go wrong. And social insurance programs, for those who don't know what this is, the major ones in the U.S. are Social Security, Medicare, Unemployment Insurance, Workers' Compensation, Disability Insurance. And these take a lot of heat and a lot of press and People want to cut benefits or add benefits. At the end of the day, all of us in America are going to be on one of these social insurance programs at some point in time. Every single person, yeah. whether you say it or not. So you're, you're going to, everybody right now is entitled to Social Security. They're entitled to Medicare. You may not use unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, or disability, but everybody, whether it's fair or not what you pay, will be affected by one of these programs in the future. So I think in general, his index card approach is pretty good. I think some of those are actually kind of repetitive. Um, But my key takeaway from his approach, and we have subscribed to this mantra for a long time, pay yourself first and start saving 10 to 20% of your income day one. And most of this will just take care of itself. It will. And it can really be it can be it can be this simple. You could take this indexed card advice, and if you execute it just the way he lays it out there, it's going to work from day it will one. Work. It can be that simple. It may not work if you do it at age fifty. Correct. But if you do it at age 22, 23, 25, 30, you have a high probability that this will work out for you. Yes. With that said, if anybody wants to get a financial plan or contact one of our advisors, you can get us at btwellshow.com. We'd be happy to help you. Thanks for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.